Why should we seek? Why all the activity? Surely if God wanted us to know him, he would just reveal himself to us so that in seeing him, we would believe. Why do we need to seek after God? Is God lost? (laughs) And if that's your question, I completely understand it. I guess my answer to that question would be a simple and resolute no. Of course, God is not lost, but, and listen carefully to this, God is hidden. Here's the thought. God cannot ravish. He can only woo. Welcome to the Follower Podcast, a place where we're learning to follow Jesus to the depths of his heart and the ends of the earth. I'm your host, Matthew Lewis, and I'm so glad you've joined us on the journey. Welcome back to the Follower Podcast. Uh, if you're just joining us, we are in a series called Return, where we're, we are using Psalm 27 verse 4 as a kind of template to discuss some key ideas around a good old-fashioned concept called repentance, which, depending on who you are as you listen to this, may mean nothing to you, or it may conjure up images of uh, shouting, spitting preachers telling you that you're going to hell. Either way, I hope to avoid both of these extremes as we keep moving forward together around this idea of repentance. Because repentance is not something to be discarded or dismissed. It should mean something to us. And too often in Christianity, uh, we turn down the volume on repentance, actually, because we don't want to offend anyone. This is a mistake. In truth, the gospel has not really been preached, uh, or or we could say that the good news that animates the heart of the Christian faith has not been effectively communicated until people are actually called to change or to repent. However, on the other side of the spectrum, uh, we also need to understand that repentance is not a reason for dread and condemnation, because it is an invitation from the God of the universe to say yes to his redemptive love and live into the fullness of our deepest, most fundamental uh, desires, um, that life-giving longing that we were speaking about in this last. As an example, you, you don't see a person who has been homeless moaning about the news that they have been given a new job and a house and now need to take a shower so that they can get on with the rest of their lives. Of course you don't see that. Uh, But that is essentially what repentance is. It's this declaration that a new glorious reality has arrived in Jesus and that Jesus is the king of all of it and that you and I are being invited to change out of our dysfunctional ways of being and be clothed with these new ways of being that lead us to life and life to the full. So when you think about it from that angle, <laughs> I mean, repentance is a beautiful thing. And so this series is all about beautiful repentance. And we've spoken about how our current cultural moment offers us this opportunity to repent, a kind of gap between the idols that we need to take advantage of. And we also said in the last episode that taking advantage of this opportunity begins with being honest with God about our desires. Because 
more than we are what we think or what we know, we are what we love, what we desire. And unfortunately, while we do desire God in the deepest parts of who we are, with a divine longing given to us by God so that we might search for Him, we are learning that there are also <laughs> levels to this game. That at a more sort of superficial level, our desires have been disordered and our hearts corrupted. So, if we are what we love, the question then is, how do we learn to love, to really desire with all of who we are, God? And that is what we want to speak about today. So to begin, let's return to the psalm. We're looking at Psalm 27 verse 4. Uh, wherever you are as you're listening to this, whatever you're doing, take a moment and be still before God. Maybe take a few deep breaths in and out. And trust that God will speak to you through these words. One thing I desire, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gazing upon His beauty, inquiring in His temple. key idea from the psalm for today that I want to pull out for us on our journey of repentance is this idea of seeking after God. Now, as soon as we start talking about seeking God, I know that we stir some sort of theological waters. And this is true for a number of reasons. On one level, there are some people who think that any idea of effort on the part of the believer stands in opposition to the idea of grace. Now, with respect, I simply, man, I just couldn't agree with, uh, now with respect, I simply couldn't disagree with that more. And I feel like this kind of interpretation of grace is not only theologically flawed, but it's actually functionally unhelpful. Now, why do I say that? It's because I think that when we apply it, it actually produces a kind of uh, a passive fatalism in people and and we dress it up in the garb of sovereignty but it actually undercuts our biblical agency as human beings to be co-creators with Christ more than that I, I think it completely ignores the words of Jesus that tell us quite plainly to seek first the kingdom of God in Matthew chapter 6 verse 33 and it's interesting that this passage is all about not being anxious <laughs> and trusting God. So the implication here is that surrender is not about the absence of seeking God, but rather about seeking God rightly. 
And those aren't the only words of Jesus. A little later in the same beautiful Sermon on the Mount, which is really Jesus' vision for humanity, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus says this. He says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. In this passage, that's all about the Father heart of God and His desire to bless us. We see God telling us to seek. And so apparently God's love for us and his desire to give us the best is not a reason to check out, but to check in. Not a reason to take anything for granted, but a reason to seek him all the more, simply because there is so much on offer. And so this idea that God's sovereignty needs to translate into our sort of passive positioning, man, I just, I just couldn't agree with that. And I don't see it in the Bible. And so I would really want us to just check that perspective. If, on the other hand, we don't see God simply because it's never really occurred to us um, that we should, because our understanding of the Christian message has nothing to do with actually knowing God now and everything to do with going somewhere nice when we die, then again, with respect, we really need to check our perspective. You see, Jesus in the opening passages of, of Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, he tells us that the kingdom reality of God is not on its way, but miraculously that it's at hand. Now, if that's true, if the kingdom of God is now and later, then there's something to be sought after, something to be experienced, right? And perhaps with Dallas Willard, we would do well to stop talking about eternal life and start talking about eternal living so that we could start to understand that the miracle that, that God is, is offering us is waiting to be discovered uh, right under our noses. Now, regardless of where you fall on these ideas, whether it's a sort of passive understanding of sovereignty or a really detached under, understanding of heaven, Regardless of where you fall, the single point I want to make clear uh, in our time together today is that if you really want to repent, you will not stumble in that direction accidentally. If anything, if you do nothing, the cultural currents of our time will wash you as far away from the fullness of life that God has for you as you could imagine. No, if you want God, friend, you are going to have to seek him it is as charles spurgeon so brilliantly reminds us holy desires must lead to resolute action desires are seed which must be sown in the good soil of activity or they will yield no harvest we shall find our desires to be like clouds without rain unless followed up by practical endeavors And I love that thought by Charles Spurgeon, man. That uh, our desires are seed which must be sown in the good soil of activity. But after all this talk of seeking, we come to this important question. Why should we seek? Why all the activity? Surely if God wanted us to know him, he would just reveal himself to us so that in seeing him, 
we would believe. Why do we need to seek after God? Is God lost? (laughs) And if that's your question, I completely understand it. I guess my answer to that question would be a simple and resolute no. Of course, God is not lost. But, and listen carefully to this, God is hidden. And to understand why I say God is hidden, let me, let me draw on the words of someone much smarter than I, Uncle uh, Charles Stanley Lewis. I want to point out that C.S. Lewis' surname is the same as mine. I'm going to just leave that with you. You decide what you will do with that truth. But here's the thing. He writes a book called Screwtape Letters. And this is a fictional collection of conversations between a senior demon named Screwtape and a junior demon named Wormwood. And um, Screwtape is training Wormwood on how to lead a person away from God. And so when you hear him talking about the enemy, he's really talking about God because it's two demons talking to one another, right? Um, so here you go. Listen, listen to these words by Screwtape, uh, by C.S. Lewis. And here we're talking about the, the necessary hiddenness of God. Man, just track with this. You must have wondered why the enemy, God, does not make more use of his power to be sensibly present to human souls in any degree he chooses and at any moment. But you now see that the irresistible and the indisputable are the two weapons which the very nature of his scheme forbids him to use. Merely to, now listen to this very carefully, merely to override a human will as his felt presence in any but the faintest and most mitigated degree would certainly do, would be for him useless. He, God, cannot ravish. He can only woo. For his ignoble idea is to eat the cake and have it. The creatures are to be one with him, but yet themselves. Merely to cancel them or to assimilate them will not serve. He is prepared to do a little overriding at the beginning, but he will set them off with communications. Uh, he will set them off with communications of his presence, which, though faint, seem great to them with emotional sweetness and easy conquest over temptation. But he never allows the state of affairs to last long. Sooner or later, he withdraws, if not in fact, at least from their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives. He leaves the creature to stand up on its own legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. Now that's a lot, but just here's the thought uh, that I want to pull out. God cannot ravish. He can only woo. In this passage, Lewis refers to the fact that, that God cannot be irresistible or indisputable in his dealings with us because it is against the nature of his scheme, which makes us ask the question, what is the nature of his scheme? What's the nature of God's scheme that stops him from being irresistible or irresist or indisputable, right? And in a word, the answer is love. God is love and God loves us and God desires for us to love him. 
Because of this, God simply cannot force himself on us. To do so would be a violation of both his character, love, and his kingdom that he has established, which is a kingdom of love. And so, bound by his own character, God cannot ravish us. To do so would make God a tyrant and not a lover. And so all that God is left with is his desire and his ability to woo us to himself. And this is precisely what he has done. In every sunset, every sunrise, in the stars that fill the night sky, in the roar of the ocean and the intricate precision of every blade of grass, and incredibly and indescribably in the life of his son Jesus, where a blood-stained cross and empty tomb beckon all those who would come. You see, friends, God can't ravish you because he's not a tyrant. So he woos you because he's a lover. And that's why he's hidden. Okay, There's a hiddenness of God. And his desire is that you would seek him out. And you say, well, where is the wooing? And I would simply point you to a bloody cross and an empty tomb. And I would say, if Jesus is not enough to woo you, then whatever would be. There's that thought that says, for those who believe, no explanation is necessary. For those who will not believe, no explanation is possible. And some of us are asking for more evidence, for God to make himself more known. But friends, how much more knowing do you need than Jesus on a cross, than God becoming flesh and dying on your behalf? Right? He's done everything that he can to woo us without um, without breaking his own character and breaking the very nature of his own kingdom, which is love. He cannot ravish us. They would make him a tyrant. So he woos us because he's a lover. And so what's left is a choice that is ours to make. We can ignore all that God has done and all that he has said. And we can turn down the volume on that ache that hums within us. And we can spend the rest of our lives running after our disordered desires and reaping the destructive consequences of their rule over our lives. Or we can take the opportunity that this moment presents us and we can choose another way. We can hear the words of God to us through the prophet of Jeremiah in chapter 29, 13. And here, friends, bear in mind, he's speaking to a nation that has wrecked itself in its devotion to the many idols that they've chosen over God. But this is what God says to the nation of Israel. He says, Israel, when you search for me, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. And so here's the thought. If you really want to repent, if you really want to take advantage of this moment, then, guys, believing in God is not enough. And desiring Him is not even enough. If you really want God, then the thing I want to help you understand today is that you are going to have to seek Him. 
And so in the last episode, we spoke about these, this base desire that's kind of aching from the inside of us. And then these disordered desires that pull us in all kinds of different directions. And we spoke about this idea of like, when I ask you, do, do you desire God? The answer is both yes and no. And now it comes down to a moment of decision. Which of those directions are you choosing to walk in? Okay. Are you going to keep running after the disordered desires or having come honestly to God and said, God, I want to want you, but I don't want you. Will you now allow the spirit of God to move you in a direction where you can cultivate the ache that hums from the inside of you? Where you can pour fuel on the fire of the divine longing so that you can walk in the direction of God. And friends, this decision, it means everything, right? Because you not only worship what you love, but you become what you worship. You not only worship what you love, but you become what you worship. And if you will not seek God, if you will keep walking in the direction of your many disordered desires, then here is what I can promise you. You will become like them and they will destroy you. And so we're left with a question now. How, how do we do that, Matt? So I've listened to you. Man, you've laid a pretty clear case about why it's biblical and reasonable and even rational that we should seek God. You've even given me a compelling reason that, that I want to seek God. And now the question is, well, how exactly do I seek God? What does that mean? Um, and I would just say that the journey is lengthy. As with all authentic discipleship, guys, anybody who's given you a, a sort of quick fix discipleship has sold you a half-truth. Any authentic friendship with God, it takes time and it's involved. I love to Mackie. He even talks about the Bible. He says, the Bible is designed in such a way that it doesn't give up its answers easily. Right, it, it demands actual discipleship from us. And so too with your friendship with God. If you are actually wanting to seek God, this is going to take the reorientation of your life. It is simple, but it's not uncomplicated, right? <laughs> At the same time, it's, it's simple enough to, for a child to get it. And yet it's not going to cost you nothing, right? You're going to have to wrap your whole life around this thing if you really want to seek God. And so all that to say is the answer of how is, is lengthy. But let me give us two signposts that will point us in the right direction as we start this, this journey together. If we're serious about seeking God, we will need at least a new model and a new method. And let me give us a short word on each as we end this episode. First of all, the model. Because as we've said, we are what we love, it follows then that a transformed life flows from transformed desires. And one of the fundamental formational elements of your desires and of mine is the model we have set before us as the ultimate goal. All right? So as human beings, we are teleological creatures. What that means is the word teleological coming from the word telescope, we live with an end in mind. Human beings simply can't exist without a goal. We are creatures leaning forward on a journey, right? So we live into the vision of something, uh, an ultimate goal. Or to put it another way, when you are honest with yourself, what is the vision you have in your mind 
for yourself and for your family when you think about how your life will turn out. So in 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, what's your hope? What's your desired future? How would you describe your good and beautiful life? To coin a phrase from James Bryan Smith. Take a moment, just think about that. Now, as you think about that life and all its different moving pieces and parts, take what you've just imagined in your mind and and consider Jesus. How much of, of your good and beautiful life looks like Jesus, <laughs> right? How much of what you are, are living for really looks like him and how much of it looks more like your favorite social media feed, Hollywood movie or lifestyle magazine? You see, for most of us, the vision that we have for our future is more a product of social engineering than it is of gospel transformation. Jesus is not really our model. Hollywood actors, business moguls, or traveling journalists, or you insert your hero here. These are the people, these are the, the images, the models, the visions we live into. And so because of this reality, one of the first things we're going to have to do if we want to seek God is we're going to have to bring the dreams and ambitions that we have, uh, we have stored up after over a lifetime of discipling ourselves under the, the, the narratives of our world. And we're going to have to lay these things down on the altar of surrender. And we do this so that we can learn to trust God and begin to live into His vision for our good and beautiful life. And so for you, and this is a hard movement, but but these are some of the practicalities. These are the nuts and bolts, right? Of actually seeking God beyond just emotional declarations in a moment of inspiration. If you actually want to seek God, what are those dreams and ambitions that are more a product of Hollywood than they are of the Bible? And what would it look like for you to lay them down on the altar of surrender so that Jesus, the Jesus, becomes your model, the one who you, the vision of the good and beautiful life that you're living into. And then a second thought on methods. Um, Because truly seeking God involves more than just an emotional choice in a fleeting moment, um, we have to think about how we actually change. Now, we've all had that experience of walking out of a sermon or a talk and we've been inspired to change our lives. And then only a few days later, two, three days later, we're right back where we started uh, and we're doing the very things we promised we would leave behind only a few days before. We know this, right? And so if we're honest about this, what, what we realize is that uh, for many of us, the way we think we change isn't actually working. 
So then, if we if we want to seek God, we need to develop what John Mark Comer calls a working theory of change. And this working theory of change has to involve more than just information, i.e., giving you the right theology and Bible verses, inspiration, giving to you in in a powerful sermon and some really cool PowerPoint pictures and a video and a and a and a and a teaching aid or whatever the thing is. Uh, so it's got to be more than information, it's got to be more than inspiration, and it's got to be more than just willpower. It's got to be more than you just gritting your teeth and saying, I'm going to change. Because we all know that three days later, you don't. Four days later, you don't. There has to be a stronger working theory of change than just information, inspiration, and willpower. And a tool that I would suggest here is the tool of habituation or and to put it another way, harnessing the power of habit. Now, many people in the Christian world would describe what I'm talking about or referring to here as spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines. But for those of you who are kind of listening in and, and even maybe exploring Jesus but not sure about him, I'm okay if you find some of that idea of spiritual disciplines and practices a bit strange and you want to stick with the concept of habit. So we can we can stay there for now, right? So let's let's look at habit as a tool for change. If we want to seek God, we can look no better place. There's nowhere else to look. If you really want to seek God, you look at the life of Jesus. And when you look at the life of Jesus, you see a lot about what Jesus said, and this is important because it helps us build a new picture of this good and beautiful life that we're living toward, right? But in addition to what Jesus said, you also see what Jesus did, how he lived. We see that Jesus was a man of habit, a man of discipline. And if we want to change into the nature of Jesus, if we want to seek the God we see in Jesus, one of the ways we do this is by taking careful note of his habits and then applying those habits to our own lives in the power of the Holy Spirit. As we do this, we find a method of seeking God that will actually lead us to a place of finding him in new and radical depths. And so that's what I want to talk about in the coming episodes, uh, the time that we have left together as we look through Psalm 27, 4. What are those habits that we find in Jesus' life that we can apply to our lives um, and, and that will actually bring change, right? And so those are the two things. How do we actually seek God? We've spoken about why we need to seek God. We've given you some because of the hiddenness of God, right? And also just because of the compelling biblical narrative. We've also given you, uh, I'm hoping, some compelling reason that you should make this decision to seek God because we are what we love and we worship what we love and we become what we worship. And so to not make this decision, to not seek God, is implicitly to choose to seek idols. And to seek idols is to choose to become the very idols that we seek. But if we actually want to seek God, the question is how, and we've just looked very briefly at this idea of getting a new model in the person of Jesus and getting some new methods by taking some of the habits of Jesus and applying them to our own lives.
In the next episode, we're going to look at one of those habits and a few others through this verse in the Psalms. Um, But if you remember nothing else from this episode, guys, as we wrap up now, here's what I want you to remember. God desperately wants to be known by you. He wants to be known by you so much so that he gave his own life to woo you to himself. But hear me carefully, really hear this. Intimacy is not automatic. There is an intimacy with God that God reserves for those who draw near to him as he draws near to them. And so in simple terms, if you want God, my friend, you are going to have to seek him. And so that's all we have uh, for this episode today. I hope this was helpful for you. Um, We didn't have any questions this week. Uh, I would love to be able to answer your questions. So guys, if you have questions, man, please jump on uh, mattlewis.co.za. Ask, follow, or anything. Shoot us an email there. I'd love to have your questions on uh, the show. If you have any questions around the hiddenness of God, seeking God, what it means to seek God, or anything else that we've raised in the previous episodes, or any episode, or anything that it means to follow Jesus in the world today, just just send that question through. I'd love to have that. In addition, uh, we're a growing podcast, and it really helps if you share, like, subscribe uh, to the podcast and share it with your friends. And if you leave reviews, that really, really helps in the ratings and to make sure that it gets in people's ears. Right. With that said, we move on to one of my favorite parts of the podcast, and that is the Q&A space question and answers and uh, today our question comes from Ilana Green all the way from China thank you for that question Ilana and uh, all the love to you and your wonderful husband Uh, Ilana's question is this can we ever desire God selflessly and should we Uh, she then quotes God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him from John Piper and uh, then she asks how do I interpret thoughts uh, of feeling selfish for seeking him because I feel empty without him i think the simple answer here is uh, no can we ever desire god selflessly and should we um i don't know if we i don't know if we really can get to a completely selfless drive in our motivation for having friendship with jesus and i'm not sure if it's actually necessary for us to do so because of what it means because of what it means uh, to be human and so what I mean here is, you know, coming back to our conversation um, around the, the sort of deep longing, that, that longing for God that's built into us. I think God makes us for himself. And so it's okay, as John Piper speaks about, that we should glorify God uh, by being satisfied in God. And I'm actually so glad that you used John Piper's quote there because he's drawing from an idea which we find in the Westminster Catechism, which is essentially a list of uh, sort of questions of the time and then uh, answers to those questions from a Christian perspective. And one of the key questions there is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer to that question is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so, you know, very often we'll put these two ideas in opposition, glorifying God and enjoying God. And we can see um, like the worst of these things when they're taken to one of their extreme ends. So, you know, you'll get the people who are all about the glory of God and they have no joy of God. There is no intimacy. There's no tenderness in their relationship with God. They, they are so busy being servants of God that they've forgotten that they're sons and daughters of God. They're so busy 
in the mission that they forget to sit down at the table, right? But then on the other side, we also have people who are all about the enjoying of God. And some of the worst expressions of this are what we call sort of the prosperity gospel, which is all about me and, and my comfort and Jesus blessing my life and, and name it, claim it kind of theology and telling God what to do. And you'll never get sick and you'll never struggle and you'll have everything that you want. Um, and that's kind of the, the worst version of this idea of enjoying God. And in, in that space, uh, you know, we can really just become fat at the table <laughs> with no sense that we're actually called into the work of God for the glory of God in the earth. And so our spirituality can become very self-indulgent and very inward focus. And then ultimately it can start to actually work against itself because God is trying to move us into self-sacrificial, uh, beautiful, self, self-forgetful self love, right? Um, and so either one of those extremes is not helpful. I think a, a helpful tension we see in Psalm 67, for example, uh, where it says this, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us, right? So that's the enjoying God part. That's the the, the satisfied in Godness. It's not wrong that we should pray that God would be gracious to us, that he would bless us, that he would make his face shine upon us. It's not wrong for you to enjoy God and to feel satisfied in your enjoyment of God. Um, you know, this is what John Piper talks about when he talks about Christian hedonism, that, that if God is a buffet meal, you eat yourself full in the presence of God. But then in verse 2 of Psalm 67, I love this, it says, So that your ways may be known on the earth and your salvation among all nations, right? So the one, this be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us, is fuel for the other, so that your ways may be known on the earth and your salvation among all nations. And so should you feel guilty or should you struggle with this idea that, you know, you love Jesus and you love loving Jesus. <laughs> I don't think that's a bad idea. And I don't think that's a problem because I think that's part of your anthropology. God has made you for himself, right? So it's okay that you should delight in the Lord. But it's also important that we find the tension there and we let that be fuel for mission. So that when we go, the perfect picture really here is the woman at the well, right? She comes, she encounters Jesus. She she has this love, affection experience with Jesus. And it sends her running into the village to go tell everyone about this man who told her everything she ever knew. And so we just hold those things in tension to enjoy God forever and to glorify God forever. And as John Piper points to, which I think is right the one actually happens well when the other is happening well. So as we most satisfy ourselves in God, God then becomes most glorified in us. Right? And so you've seen someone who's in love with someone. Okay, It's not only that they talk about that person. It's how they talk about that person that's so compelling. And so if we really are serious about God being glorified in the earth, there's a kind of tone and affection, a fervency to our message that's not only about the content of the message, but the nature in which it's communicated. And that nature, that affection, that compelling element of our witness is very dependent on the affections we actually have between us and the Father. And so I would hopefully just uh, just relieve you of that that struggle there, Ilana. It's okay. Live in the tension, but enjoy enjoying God. I think you're made for it. I think it's built into your anthropology. 
And then uh, the second question uh, Ilana has here around um, anthropology, she says, how does this anthropology translate into sharing Jesus in conversations with people who don't know him yet? And what questions are helpful to ask? And that's a brilliant question. Thank you for asking it. I think when we understand the gospel first as a healthy anthropology that then leads to a helpful theology, it changes a lot about how we share the gospel. Right, because so often our response to people around biblical issues. So, for for example, we would say things like, uh, "We believe that sex is reserved uh, for the covenant of marriage," and then people would say to us, "Well, why is that?" Particularly in a secular age when that is the most foreign concept ever, and our response is often, "Well, because the Bible says so," right, or because it's true, or because this is what we believe. And although you may be right, objectively speaking, it's not helpful. Uh, when you're engaging with the context of our time, because people could care less what the Bible says, <laughs> right? And in a post-truth culture, they could care less with what you what you think truth means. Okay, so if you want to talk about, for example, sexual ethics, one of the first places you have to start is with an anthropological perspective. What do you think it means to be human? And once you understand what you think it means to be human, then we understand what sex is for and what it's about and why it's damaging for you to misuse it. And then we can we can really point to the uh, the huge amount of evidence of our time as to the effects that an abused sexuality is having not only on individuals but our culture at large, right? So uh, this idea of anthropology has everything to do with how we share the gospel because, you know, there was a time when the kind of way we would share the gospel is we'd sit down next to someone, we'd say, uh, do you know where you're going to go when you die? And they would say, no, I don't know where I'm going to go when I die. And then we'd kind of look at them with a very worried face and say, oh, well, you know, unless you believe in Jesus, then, you, then you'll go to hell when you die. And they'll say, well, I don't want to go to hell, so I better believe in Jesus. And people believe in Jesus and go to heaven. And so we kind of built this idol where people didn't really come to Jesus. They were heavenist or hellist using Jesus to either escape the one or gain the other, right? But that's just not a healthy anthropology because it's like, well, we're, we're harboring fear there. We're using fear as a leveraging machine. And secondly, we're not really digging into the, the deep spaces of what you think it actually means to be Jesus, uh, to be human at least. And so uh, Jesus is only really compelling in my conviction if you start to get a healthy understanding of what it means to be human and then why Jesus is the alpha human, so to speak. Why Jesus embodies the humanity you so long for and not only now, but in the age to come. And so this eternal kind of life, or as we spoke about in this episode, this eternal kind of living that Jesus comes to secure for us through his death and resurrection, how he has um, humiliated the powers and principalities and secured the kingdom now, and then invites us as the as brothers and sisters, he being the firstborn among many brothers, right? That he would be this picture of the new humanity. And so when we're sharing the faith, anthropology has everything to do with that. And so what kind of questions would be helpful to ask? I think just ask people about themselves. I would often say to people, if you're sharing your faith, just be fascinated. Be really interested with people. Be interested in their lives and, and, and their hobbies and their interests and their passions. Because if you talk to someone about their humanity, at some point you'll talk to them about their spirituality. Because it's an unavoidable element of who they are. And so ask questions about the person. Don't have like a loaded agenda 
conversation. People can see through that and it actually undercuts the uh, vehicle of love that we're called to share the gospel in. So instead, just be fascinated with the human being in front of you and ask questions that probe beyond the surface into the deep things of their heart. What are they carrying? What are their passions? What are their fears? What are, what are the things they're concerned about? What are their anxieties in this time? And then as they start to unpack that with vulnerability in friendship, we can ask then questions about how they resolve some of those things and where those things may lead. And ultimately, when we hit down to bedrock, what we're left with is God and why Jesus is the vehicle of that God. He's the representation of that God that they are actually most longing for anyway. And so Ilana, I hope that that is helpful for you. Um, That last one, a little bit abstract, but as you can see, it's not a, a simple answer to the question. But I think you're really touching on something very, very important there. Um, And uh, those are our questions uh, for this episode, friends. So that's it, guys. If you want God, you're going to have to seek Him. And we'll talk about one of the ways we start to do that by adopting one of the habits of Jesus uh, in the next episode. Until then, I hope you have a good week. And I hope that you're able to really consider what it will mean to say yes to God's wooing of you through His Spirit, even as you listen to this podcast now. Thanks, guys. We'll see you soon.